Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Well, welcome to Massive Small Stories, Kelvin. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Fine. Long time, long time no long see. Long no. Have you missed me? I have missed you. I have missed you. <laughs> I have missed you. I have. I know you haven't. I have. I know. So what's the best thing that's happened to you since uh, we last... Oh, I've tapped the table. I'm not supposed to do that. I've learned to, <laughs> I've learned to upload a podcast. Have you? Yeah, I've, I've, I've finally qualified as a fully-fledged sound engineer, and I've learned how to master tech. That's what I've done. Have you? I have. On your own? On my own. Wow. But, um We're quite lucky today. We have someone incredibly important. In fact, who really works quite closely with what we've been talking about. Very much does. Change. So um, Seth Kaplan is uh, the author of Fragile Neighbourhoods, based in America, in Maryland. 12 miles Twelve, from the White 12 House. 12 miles from the White House, and uh, he's with us today. And uh, Seth, welcome. Really ha good to have you with us. I'm quite honoured uh, to be here, and I love the name. So thank you so much for joining, and, and the whole theme behind your podcast. Now you're very welcome. You've got a very impressive guest, I have to say, Kelvin. Uh, tell me how much of this is true. A senior advisor for the Institute of Integrated Transitions, a lecturer at the Paul Nitz School of Advanced International Studies at Drop Hopkins University, consultant to multilateral organizations such as the World Bank, the US State Department, US Agency for International Development, and the OECD. Wow. Well, I've never been a chief encouragement officer before, and so you beat me on that one by far. Yeah, something to aspire to. To be honest, I think of my job actually as the main thing I do, besides like thinking about frameworks, is just encouraging encouraging people with a framework, yeah, uh, to uh, do their jobs better. So I love I love that title. But yes, thank you. And we really we really want to get into that. Uh, so, uh, Kelvin, let's go. I. I got a copy of your book, and I said to Isaac, I'll speed read this um, in a couple of hours. And I got about through 10 pages, and I said, this is not worth speed reading. You've actually got incredible depth in here. And, and Is that just another way of saying you haven't read the book? I've speed read the bottom <laughs> end of it, but I want to go back and read all of it. So I must apologize. I haven't seen all, but I've got the gist of it. I've been following you on LinkedIn recently, and we're following the conversations that have been happening around fragile neighborhoods. And uh, I mean, almost everything you said seems to sort of chime with what I've been doing but from a completely different perspective. I'm an urbanist and a writer, uh, and I've spent my life in dysfunctional housing estates or informal settlements or uh, working on trying to change uh, what we perceive as neighborhoods, but in many places aren't neighborhoods. And um, it's quite interesting to, to get your perspective on it, because I've been saying exactly the same, but from a slightly different perspective. And I've said, we haven't built a decent new neighborhood anywhere in the world in the past three generations. So when we talk of neighborhoods, we're actually talking about older fabric that was sort of pre-war. And I'm sure that's probably the same with the States. I think uh, you've got a similar sort of problem where we've treated 
the development of, of housing or housing estates or housing projects as the way in which we solve social, social problems. So we haven't created a neighborhood having that, the qualities of neighborhood that we get in old places. So I'm interested to how we, how we get back to that and how we actually introduce the concept of neighborliness in places that are dysfunctional by their very nature. And according to the subtitle of the book, doing it one zip code at a time. So, yeah, over to you, Seth. I'm, I mean, I could say a few things. First, the one zip code at a time is my belief that we need to think horizontal yeah. about society and about our problems. We tend to think vertical. Uh, we look for that magic bullet. We look. We debate policy when much of what people experience uh, policy can matter, of course, but there are a lot of other things that matter besides policy. Policy is a top-down perspective. So I would say one thing is definitely we want to think horizontal, want to think place by place, try to understand how people are experiencing life and what would make their experience in their particular place, their neighborhood better. So I, I mean, I certainly think all those things, are, and we have to be very practical. I mean, what I sought to do there's a lot of books on what's wrong with society today. Yeah. Um, I mean, Bob Putnam, Robert Putnam has made a whole career on it. Uh, but when you ask him and others, what do you do about it? They're not very practical because I think we're, we're unfortunately trained to think very government policy oriented. And I think society, while that matters to some extent, what often matters much more is what's happening locally. And then the big question is, well, how do you catalyze more of what's needed locally in all these? I mean, in my country, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of different places. So that's really, really where I start. And um, I'll just say one more thing is that I think very much about relationships. We tend to think that if we, if we, if we uh, do something materially, that will be that's how you solve a problem. But I very much think better relationships between neighbors, between people on your street and in your area, that's the starting point for change. We don't, we're not, we're not atomized individuals. The more we cooperate, the more we know each other, the more we're in mutually supportive relationships. I just think we'll have a happier life and that we'll be able to have greater, greater ability to make our places better for us. So, I mean, these are all different themes and we can go in any direction you want. Well, could you give us some, I think that, I've read some of the book and I've got some, I'm really keen to get around to talk to you about religion. Um, uh, but can you give us some examples of how you've seen that horizontal change, how you've seen relationships being put back together? Because I think we were talking before we came on air here yeah. about how, difficult, so, it is, how yeah. difficult it is, uh, even in an affluent area, to get lasting yeah. uh, connectivity between people, let alone in a community with a lot of unemployment and crime and so on. So you know we've promised our listeners that we'll we'll have guests on that have a really good analysis of the situation but also can give us some really interesting examples of how that change is made i mean well first of all when i when i talk about social poverty um being different than income poverty i think we need to understand while while the forms may differ i mean wealthy neighborhoods today i mean have their own form of social poverty they're very isolating people are reluctant to show that they have a problem they're reluctant to uh, be vulnerable. I mean, so it's either you you have a couple of people, like in your household, you might ask. You have your app. And then who will you ask? I, I'll give a very specific example. I can remember we we um I have I have a, a three kids, and when I had two kids, my oldest uh basically took 
uh, I think her younger brother was about two, and took him out of the car and then proceeded walking to the front door, dropped him, dropped him on the cement. And you can just, I can still feel the pain of him. And his, his chin is all bleeding. And it's like, oh my, what did she just do? And my wife, who's like Miss Emergency Manager, she picked him up and she took off down the street and didn't even tell the, the other, my daughter or myself, where we go, where's she going? She didn't say anything. Where do you think she went? Can you make a guess at it? Where do you think she went? Just down the street, not in the car, not to the hospital, not to, where did she go when she ran down the street? The deli. No, I mean, she ran to the closest nurse. She knew where, she, we know where the closest nurses are in our neighborhood. So she went to a nurse. So within five minutes, whatever, of the accident, he is at the nurse's house and there's a backup and there's another backup. And if you know a lot of your neighbors and you have strong social fabric, you're really preventing lots of problems. So I'll just go back to what you said before, and then I'll, maybe what I'll do if you want, I'll give a, a, a more organizational example. The point is, if you have strong social relationships, even in a materially well-off place, it's transformational for how joyful, how optimistic, how positive you feel every day about life. And I just see it in my neighborhood. It's incredibly strong relationships. But let me give you one, if you allow me, give you an example of a distressed neighborhood. And I write in chapter four about Life Remodeled. Life Remodeled, great guy, Chris Lambert, goes into a neighborhood in Detroit. He had been working for many years, cleaning up, um, beautifying, helping, beautifying streets, helping people with houses, like their roofs, the roofs were broken, or they didn't have a boiler for the winter. And doing a lot of good things for a lot of people. And Detroit's a city that's lost two-thirds of its population. And it's almost like a post, post-war post scenario where you have large parts of the city don't simply don't exist anymore. There's a few decayed buildings there. And so he was doing this for years. And then he decided he was going to be more ambitious. He says, I'm going to build a neighborhood hub. I'm going to take over. He got an offer from the city. I'll build a neighborhood hub in this middle a middle school um, uh, for like sixth, seventh, eighth grade students, like um, a middle school, beautiful, beautiful building. And he thought this would be great. He went to the neighborhood to announce it and they were furious with him. Here, these people are doing very bad. Their lives are not good. Yeah. And they saw him come in. And they the, the point was they had, they had the trust in him to take a boiler. They had a trust in him to take a repair on this, on the house. They had the trust in him to beautify the street. They didn't have a trust in this stranger who they had a very thin relationship with to go take over the most important asset in the neighborhood. And he got a very good deal from the government. And they were like, and also, he's a white guy. And this is a black neighborhood. So who's this white guy coming in here, taking over this beautiful building? And why do they give it to him and not to any of us? So he had he had to learn how do you build trust? And it's a gradual incremental process. So we could delve more into it. But the, the question is, in all of these situations, rich and poor, we have to think about how do we have good ties and cooperation on some level, even if it's just recognition that we both exist and we should support each other. The more you have that and the stronger those institutions are, the more likely any neighborhood will thrive. And I think that makes an enormous difference in people's lives. And if you're trying to change the world, I mean, what's more important that everyone lives in a thriving neighborhood? Uh, I mean, it matters so much for people. I mean, those... This is something we've come back to again and again in the mm. um, stories that we've heard in the conversation we've had on this podcast, 
is this the challenges are so enormous you know here they're getting the the gap between the haves and the have-nots and inequality is growing in the states you know we you know we watch aghast at some of the stuff that's going on uh, going on there what you're talking about seems so small and trivial against this massive um, problems that we've got so how does enough of that happen to really address these things at the scale that it needs to do and also how do you personally stay optimistic and hopeful um, confronted by some of the issues that you spend your life looking at well i mean first i mean again uh I mean, the, the data on the, just the different life outcomes based upon where you live is so enormous. And of course, you hear about all these. What's what's amazing for me is that we look at our social indicators and I, I, I couldn't speak for the UK, but I think it's paralleled in many ways, probably not as bad. Our deaths of despair, our um, health challenges, our, um, our inequality, our mistrust, our polarization, our depression, our loneliness, our, I mean, all of these are social problems to some extent that mistrust and polarization you might consider political, but it actually are social, social leading to politics, social is upstream from politics. You have all these things, they're all getting worse in parallel, and yet you very rarely have people talk about, well, what's upstream that's leading to all these things happening at the same time? And so, I mean, I mean, just I mean, so we need to understand that something is happening in the local, in the each individual place, or at least many of our individual places that's driving all of uh, many, many of our problems. So what the, the way to be optimistic is that you can find in lots of places great people. You can call them social entrepreneurs. Sometimes they play different roles. But the key thing is there's a lot of people who feel this and a lot of people who want to do something about it. And I searched very hard and i can always find you can always find um if you look hard enough in many places not everywhere and some places aren't doing well but you can always find um if you look hard enough around like a larger area people who get this problem people who are willing to step up and do something about this problem and the thing is there's not a there's not a magic bullet you can't say the government should give people more money or the government should change the zoning, or the government should build more of this. In reality, I, I think we should think about these problems differently, about how we structure society to nourish strong relationships. We don't, we, we build, when we do build cities today, or we build suburbs, or we just build our landscape physically or institutionally, we don't even think about how those things affect relationships. And a lot of what we do make relationships worse. I and mean, we talked about housing, but I could simply say that we, most of us live in placeless environments instead of place-based neighborhoods like we used to. So, I mean, there's a lot of things we could do to rethink, but the hope and the and what I try to do is find lots of people. And I look through, through dozens of organizations to choose these five. The key thing is you can find people who are doing really exciting work that I would say are on the front line of this type of relationships, um, uh, relationship building, and then you can study them. And the big question is, how do you encourage them to grow horizontally? How do you encourage others to learn from what they're doing? How do you encourage more of society, government, policy, philanthropy to think harder about things in a place-based lens as opposed to an individual-based lens? 
I mean, there are certainly many avenues you could think about and do something with that would affect this problem. So because of that, I have to be optimistic. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the uh, guests we had on, the, um, I really encourage you to, to, to listen to when we, we upload it, was a guy called Math Potts who worked for housing associations. He ran the government's homelessness project, spent tens of millions of pounds on um, homelessness projects all over the country and got so disillusioned with the top-down thing. And I remember yes. he said to me a few years ago, look, what p homeless people need is love and uh, solidarity. And I went, that's great. How, how are you going to do that? And so he's developed now a movement called Camarados, which I really encourage you. I, I think he's got... I mean, I, you're the second person this week to mention it. Yes, I, I've just and, and, and connected he, with them on LinkedIn. Yeah, and um, I'll connect, we'll connect you to Math. He's, he's an amazing guy. I'd be happy to speak to him, yes. I mean, you're he's the got, he's, literally the second person in the week to mention them. Yeah, he says a camarado is halfway between a friend and a comrade. And, a comrade. Um, and what he does is he literally goes to communities where people don't want to go, puts a sofa, a settee down, gets a kettle out and a, pot, and a teapot, sits there and waits to see who comes and talks to them. And he's, he's a great... He, and he wrote the jazz music that we use on. He's a, he's a jazz player as well. But he's, got a, he's, he's a very good phrase maker too. And his, one of his phrases is, the answer to our problems is ourselves. And so what yeah. he's trying to do is just what you're saying there is to say, don't look to the council, the government. Let's look to ourselves to rebuild the fabric of society that gives us love and meaning and belonging. I mean, the fabric is a product of our relationship. So if we don't, I mean, the question is, we need scale, yeah. but we need a different kind of scale. Yeah. And when I think about horizontal, we need scale in a particular neighborhood, and then we need scale across neighborhoods. And a lot of that's, there are things working. How do we get it to reproduce? I mean, and then what can we do outside to nurture it? But I totally agree with you. We have to, there's a great limit to what government can do when the problem is the nature of our fabric, our social fabric and our relationships. Yeah. Just before we get into some more of the, the book, what is it that drives you, Seth? Why are you interested in this? Why aren't you just a you know, multi-squillionaire professor doing all your wonderful stuff and living in your bubble? What, what makes Seth Kaplan interested in trying to build trust? Well, I, I mean, think... I have spent, before I, I did Fragile Neighborhoods, I, I, and I continue to do, I, but before this, my main focus was Fragile State. So the question is, why do I focus on society and relationships? I mean, it's like asking a deep psychological question, but I think the answer likely is, is that I grew up and I had um, many struggles when I was small. I mean, I had trouble speaking until I was five. I mean, my own mother uh, to this day will reflect that um, she had trouble understanding me and I was five years old, something about how I pronounced or understood words. You come a long um, way, baby. And, very um, understandable now. Well, yeah. And then after, that, I, after that, after that, I stuttered. And I was always a bit, I was always like doing well in school, but like a little bit socially behind, if you know what I mean by that. And so I got bullied a lot. I changed schools at some point. And I think I got to the point like probably seventh, eighth, ninth grades were really bad. And I got to the point where literally I had to stand aside, watch the social dynamics and think, what is going on here? And how do I do better to integrate myself with those people? And then whatever, I got a little older. And when I was in college, I had a chance to go overseas for the summer. I went to Istanbul and that's like the, chi the, the, the trip that changed my life. Because after that, I said, I became so curious about the 
the, the way people treated you in these countries, um, I mean, mostly outside the West, but especially in fragile states, is that people are so warm, the relationships are so thick, and yet the countries are so dysfunctional. So consider me a person who became somewhat a student of society without actually being intentional about it. And then I just was very curious and I had such a good time and I liked the people. So I ended up being in Africa. I, I lived in Africa. I lived in Asia. And think I've done homestays in over 30 countries. And I did, uh, eventually I've been to 75 and I've worked on 35. But the whole thing is even when I got to the fragile states work, everyone looked at the problem as being a technical problem a policy problem. And my instant reaction, possibly because I lived in Nigeria and from Nigeria, I moved to Japan, the least cohesive large country to the most cohesive large country. And I mean, they all had similar, I mean, Nigeria was, it was authoritarian then, but even if you had the exact same formal institutions and constitution, everything about the country would be different based upon the social dynamics. So something about this journey and this travel, and just everyone is all technical. And I'm looking at these countries, I'm saying technical is already too late. You're looking at the wrong problems. So there's all these books and studies. And my my fixing fragile states and everything I've done since is focused on this idea that society is upstream. You get the relationships right. You get the institutions right. The politics, the economics will work out fine. But if you don't get those other things right, you can put more money into it. You can try to get the policies right. You're going to be greatly limited on what you can actually do. I think it's true in business as well. My experience as an investor and a founder is it's all about relationships, relationships Absolutely. within the company, with investors, with your supply chain, with your customers. I, think it's I mean, I spent several years in business, so I, I think the, the business experience must have been helpful as well. Sorry, go ahead, Kelvin. No, just saying what, what's fascinating is that when we were writing Massive Small Change, uh, we had a network of people telling us about small change projects. And I still get people writing to me today. Is that you can't keep bottom up down. It's like innate. It sits there and it flourishes and it's it's always looking to, to put roots in places. And we saw thousands of small change projects happening across the world. And a lot in America, actually. A lot of really good projects that are happening at um, an incredibly local scale, whether it was... Power of the Dirt pro project in Baltimore, or whether it was um, the Dallas Better Block projects, or some of the tactical urbanism stuff. And, and the one that, that inspired me the most, actually, was Detroit Soup, which was a project where people, I don't know if you've heard of this one, Seth, but it's people used to come together on a Sunday evening to have a bowl of soup, and they put a bit of money in a hat. And someone would pitch for that money. They'd come along and say, the real problem is the buses are not running that often, and we don't have bus stops. Can we try and get some basic bus shelters? Uh, or can we then, libraries were closing, so how do we solve the problem? So they created a, um, a small uh, little flap that happened under the bus shelter step, uh, a seat to, to, to put books. So people had access to books. And these incredibly small projects made a fundamental difference on, on, uh, on society. And I think that's what we've got to look at all the time is the small beginnings. We always constantly look at big solutions. And I'm, I'm glad you raised the point that we constantly look at a policy fix or a financial fix or eco fix, whatever it is. Uh, and it never seems to work. And one of the things we found common in most of these projects is that top-down systems suppress these small change projects. They almost became the heavy hand to say, well, you can't do that. You know, there's a health and safety issue. You can't do that. That's against policy. You can't do that. Someone might not like it. Our constituents might not like it. And uh, you always wonder why governments do this. Why, why don't governments release the potential of people 
to solve some of these wicked problems because governments can't do it. And they've stopped doing it. I'm convinced that they stopped doing it probably 30 years ago, I'd say, uh, where I think they lost their ability to solve some of these complex, wicked problems. And so the idea when you when you said, um, I think in one of your statements I saw on LinkedIn, which was, isn't it, uh, you know, isn't it surprising that we're so dysfunctional nationally or so polarized nationally? You know, is it a coincidence uh, when we are not operating functionally at the local level? So in other words, if we're not functioning as, as, with local democracy at work, how do we ever expect national democracy to work? You know, so we can sit and complain about national democracy, but actually we are the people who put these guys in place in the first place. So this idea of building the roots at the, at the, at the grassroots has been incredibly strong and very functional must be the challenge we all face. Changing governments is so difficult to do. You know, it's, it's sometimes you, you almost, it's almost, uh, almost impossible to try and get these guys to shift because quite often their real purpose is just staying in power. Have you, so, so have you come across any authority, local or statewide or maybe even national, which has got this and has helped the local to flourish? Or is it always a case of smothering it bureaucratizing it, getting in the way of it? I, I mean, uh, these are a series of points. I mean, I, the thing is, we can always find examples. Um, and the, the big question, in, I think, in our field, uh, for those of us who think uh, massive, small is the right way, is how do you, what's the right initiative that will have the largest impact? How do you institutionalize that initiative so it has some uh, sustaining capacity. Mm. Um, and if it works very well, how do you replicate it? Uh, so it affects more people in a place and then works across many places. So government is so true what you say. I mean, one of the, the great changes that I think is not well appreciated is how much civil society has changed mm. in the last two generations. I mean, I, I'm thinking in the United States, civil society used to be loads and loads of local associations. Some of them were translocal. Think of the veterans or things like that. Um, and they would have thousands of chapters. Some of these things would be very local. But the point is, civil society existed at a very local level, local nonprofits, churches, um, uh, schools were very local. Everything was, you literally lived in a place-based community. And now today, everything is network-oriented. Yeah. And the civil society organizations have been transformed. They're very professional. They're not about making places better. They're very siloed. So when you talk about the problems of government, I would say there's a very parallel problem about philanthropy and civil society. I just wrote an article, came out in a magazine, a journal called National Affairs, in which I talk about saving trees and losing forests. And that basically it means is that yeah, because we're so focused on individuals and material, yeah. we tend to ameliorate problems by our government and philanthropy and many nonprofits, but we're never lifting up places. And we're, we're to some degree, we're limiting every person's upward movement by the way we even try to help them. And so in reality, we could help a few trees and then the whole forest could decay. And, and and because we're so siloed, so professional, so driven by large, large pools of money. And civil society previously was none of that. In my, in my local neighborhood, which is, I don't think it's typical, but there are other examples. Um, I actually named quite a few examples. I mean, uh, the great majority, the school, the people wanting to give things away, 
the neighbors talking to each other, the local businesses, the local, everything is sort of tied to the local, maybe not 100%, but let's say 60, 70%. And it just forms this incredible dynamic where everyone is supporting each other and there's a sense of common destiny. And so the civil society in my neighborhood, so much doesn't reflect what, what these big professional institutionalized, as well as government. We interface with government, but helping, I mean, I could give a hundred examples of people helping each other locally, mm. um, if you want to dare those examples, and none of that is done by government. And it's really not done in a, in a society where everyone just thinks they're in their house and they don't know anybody. I mean, that's like the worst situation I can imagine. Yeah, and I think also here, I, I'm guessing it might be the same in the States, We've talked about this before, haven't yeah. we? Is that when when you're pitching for um, in, investment, uh, the first question you're asked is, or maybe the second question is, how does this scale? And they're not thinking sideways or horizontal. I mean, they're also thinking very siloed metrics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I wrote a piece. I mean, I think there's um, I, I mean, I see this in your research over and over again. They have short term horizons. They want very material outcomes. It's very siloed. The idea that you might work in a place and try to boost capacity, boost institutions, boost the place itself, none of that fits within the paradigm of how most of these organizations and governments work. And do you think there's a, there's a way back from that, or is it simply the, uh, the answer to this just has to be local people getting together and ignoring what's going on in those larger um, organizations are they irredeemable i mean i i'm i'm a big believer that um i want to you want to encourage the local um but i'm a big I, i think i think there's multiple ways that we can work on this problem one of course is encourage the local and create mechanisms to support the local yeah. whether it's small grant programs most funding most funding streams actually local people without an organization, without some sort of professional skills, and this is especially true in poor neighborhoods, they have no ability to access resources, whether the resources are money, capacity building, networks. Networks are really important and undervalued. So what do we do to identify and uplift key local actors wherever they are? So there's actually a whole pathway you could do there. I think a second pathway is to rethink government I mean, one of the things that baffles me, I mean, I'm, I'm always a bit of an outsider in terms of, I haven't spent my whole life thinking about how uh, governments in our countries work. But one of the things that's so confusing to me, why does government work around silos? Why didn't government work around different neighborhoods and had and were, was accountable for the neighborhoods and had the housing silo and the healthcare silo and whatever other, the education silo, why didn't those be more supportive advisory and have these neighborhood teams be accountable for how well their neighborhoods were doing. The whole idea is we need to change incentives. So that could be true in the government space. It could be true in philanthropy and nonprofit. The only way we're going to change this is, yes, something that's on the ground. And I would say a lot of small grant programs and and creative out-of-the-box ways to, to, again, support people and I've seen a, a few foundations who are thinking along those ways, but a few out of thousands of foundations yeah, yeah. means that most of them are not. I mean, some of them are place-based, so they might be better, but I'm thinking of one in particular that's in Baltimore that's very good. Uh, but I'm also thinking government. If government was structured differently so that it was 
it was accountable for, and Jay Jacobs talked about this in her work uh, 60 years ago, if government was structured around neighborhoods, the people who were actually with the, with the most, I mean, I, I don't want to say most important, but with the public authority, they would have a greater incentive. And so, so you could think, I could give you a few others. I mean, I think if, if our healthcare system was, was, was designed differently, so a thought more of prevention and less about just addressing people, addressing uh, illness when it happens, and you could create some incentives, and some of this might be public-private partnerships or some sort of social impact bonds or some creative mechanisms. But imagine if healthcare was about prevention, and we knew that for good health, strong local relationships were hugely important. How would healthcare, I mean, you, you have the National Health Service, we have a very different system, but how could health, care be rethought such that it prioritized strengthening the local relationships and not just dealing with you once you're sick. And so I, I think you could go through many of these avenues and you could certainly find ways to think about how change might happen. Interesting on the health um, side of things, uh, I was uh, talking to the CEO of Vitality, which is a big health insurer recently. Mm -hmm. And they, it was very interesting that they have many ways in which they incentivize the, their policyholders um, to stay healthy, to stay, fit, yeah. to stay fit and healthy, and you have you get the watch, you, get the and you, watch have, you go for yeah, points. Right, yeah. I mean, and the more points you get, you get you get prizes. And there's a very um, straightforward business case for doing that. So if you stay healthy, you're That's not right, going to get sick when you're older. Your, your, it costs us a lot of money. Yeah, your your policy reduces uh, as well. It's also yeah. your premiums reduce basically. Yeah. Something that would yeah. a, a model that would encourage social yeah. capital and trust in local communities and is incentivized to do that as a really interesting that's, idea. I mean, that's a, I mean, you have incentives to, to do like eat better sometimes, but yeah. I've never seen a good incentive program to build social capital. So please invent one. We uh, will. We'll do it right after this. I, I think one of the big challenges we face is that all that's been happening recently is that government's been centralizing more. So if you look at our National Health Service, which yes. used to be yes. a very devolved system, they basically gave McKinsey's a billion pounds, boo, boo. A billion pounds to restructure the the National Health Service, and all they've done is centralised it. So when the pandemic came along, what did they do? The central system didn't work. It was the doctors on the ground that helped. So, at the end of the day, they recognised that this failure of the centralised system um, wasn't going to solve an incredibly diverse problem or create difficult, wicked problem that came along at the time. It resolved. It resolves itself on the ground as close to the ground as possible. So there's some fantastic challenges that um, and we, we, you must have experienced. I know you write about it in the sort of post-pandemic um, world. We experienced it in our, in, our own t in our own little village, which was, I think the community genie got let out the bottle. It did. Okay, all of a sudden, there was a sort of, we were caring about neighbours. Everyone was baking cakes for everyone. I, I was so sick of sourdough. Right. That's right. Everyone did a sourdough course. We've made some more sourdough, but I don't want any fucking sourdough. But I've got, I've got a freezer full of it. Bring me something else. And so I think you saw that change happening. And the question is, how do you capture that? It's quite difficult in a in a world where a lot of people you try and corral around, so you know, a social change project to say, well, it's government responsibility. Why should we? We pay our taxes to look after the poor. You know, to to heal other people. Relationships, relationships is never a government question. I mean, there's things that if you certainly if I have a neighborhood hub or a library or a, a park where the streets are narrower, you can or there's more density. I think it, it helps it, but ultimately relationships 
depend upon us. Oh, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, could we just in um, uh, your please your any direction sideways, you want to go into and, uh, your your scaling sideways chapter, um, and you give you've got your lessons and lesson seven is look for ways to creatively engage religious organizations and values. Yes. I'm a recovering Catholic, um, having uh, endured very old school Irish Catholicism when I was uh, growing up. But the older I get, and maybe wiser I get, I can see the value in a lot of it as a sort of something that was cohesive that kept people together. And certainly when the Irish immigrants came into this country in the 50s and 60s, it was the churches that were the sort of protectors of us. I mean, there was a lot wrong with it, don't get me wrong. But the schools, the clubs, the GAAs, all of that sort of thing. Um, so what do you see the role of religion being? You say here, faith is often dismissed in our culture as being merely about myths, magic, or priestly privilege. But religion attracts people because of the meaning and sense of belonging it provides. So what do you see the role of religious organizations in a society? You may be more religious in America than, than we are here. Um, for those who have no faith and those who have faith? Well, I, I think I can, uh, why don't I answer that question, my own personal experience, uh, please. Uh, and then I could speak. Um, so I, I didn't grow up religious. And um, I, I mean, clearly from my, I mentioned a little before about my bringing, my upbringing. And uh, I guess I, you could say I ended up with um, a set, some sense of alienation and um, I'm not sure I would call it mistrust, but some sense of um, unhappiness with, I guess, the way I was treated and society. I mean, you might have had that experience in the church. I had it in the secular society. But whatever it is, I, I had this great longing. Uh, I mean, clearly, not only do I write about community and I write about society. I mean, I personally, I mean, every choice I've made in my life. I, I, if, why did I spend um, over 10 years in all those different countries? Um, um, I mean, simply because I felt a greater sense of that people were mutually interdependent and they were supportive. And then when I got to the point where I started thinking about having a family, um, my immediate reaction was I wanted that, that to have a family I needed a community. I needed a community before I ha had a family. That was something that somehow Somehow, I mean, just in general, my something about me, this yearning to be a member of to be to to belong to something greater than myself, and to be in a culture where people in that culture are there to support each other. And I felt so often in the secular world that people were not supporting each other; they were competitive. Um, and I had a and I had a lack of belonging. I mean, I was doing business, and then I got rid of the business for the fragile states at some point. I mean, it was there was some intellectual reasons, but clearly, I wanted my life to matter more than selling toothpaste. Um, I didn't sell toothpaste, but I did spend two months selling ch chocolate milk, which was not what I would uh, uh, desire to do for to my life. Uh, chocolate which means choc you can uh, sell more toothpaste for... well yeah that's funny i didn't think of that connection the toothpaste <laughs> is more of a, an example but that's good yeah. you, you try to tell my uh tell my daughter to brush her teeth so but anyway so i mean i just so i i think personally i have this great need for something about belonging and meaning and when i thought about family my immediate reaction was i needed faith and because i wasn't finding this in the secular world and and so I personally, 
I mean, I mean, I think people find religion and they wake up one day. And I know a lot of people that are born again. I happen to be Jewish. We hear about born again Christian. I know people who are born again Jews and they get totally immersed in it. I, for the most part, didn't change very much. And I continue to do what I do. Uh, but I just thought the lifestyle mm. of religion, it, it, it provided me a community. It provided me a support system. It provided me a sense of joy that I could not get anywhere else. I mean, I mean, this day in and day out, there's something about it that that I mean, and I can understand why people are alienated. And I mean, the Catholic Church and, and my faith, there's always lots of problems. And I think in general, when I speak about that in the book, what's interesting is that some of the most the people I think the problem of our society is the social fabric more than anything else. Yes, there's material woes. Yes, there's problems. But the social fabric is what stands out to me. Um I mean, as the single cross-cutting, most significant domestic, you could talk about international challenges and you could talk about fiscal and all these other things. But if I think about the hardest, most important thing affecting the well-being of the people in the United Kingdom or in Ireland or in the United States, it's something about the decay of the social fabric, making our daily lives less, less um, happy, less positive, less less feeling good about ourselves and less able to, to address many challenges we have. And what's good about religion, I can speak from personal experience, but what you see in the book is that many of the social entrepreneurs, they, they were inspired by faith or they came out of a faith culture and something about that culture. And there's plenty of data on this. There's this great book by Robert uh, Putnam and a co-author, which I don't remember, American Grace, studying what does religion do to individual behavior, basically. And it creates a lot more pro-social behavior, a lot more philanthropy, a lot more uh, desire to help each other and more trust. And that's even when you're talking about non-religious behavior and, and with, uh, with institutions and giving. So I can just speak from a personal as well as a uh, from this, for the perspective of society, um, religion adds a dimension that we cannot get anywhere else. And I'm not here to evangelize. Uh, every person must make their own choice. But it's it's it is hard on a certain level to think about how we address the social fabric question without having some role for local houses of worship. There's other mechanisms to bring people together, but it's really hard to be massive, small on the level of houses of worship because they're everywhere. I mean, they might, they may be more dormant or they may be in decay, uh, but there's no other, there's no other entity that there's simply thousands and thousands and thousands of them in some form everywhere in our societies. I mean, there's no, there's no secular nonprofit. So, they, and I, and I, and I speak to church leaders and I ask them, I think it's so important. You have to, you have to step back a little bit from the way that, and I think the, one of the challenges, the idea of religion in our age has so shrunk, it's not it's not what it was in the past. It's become like a consumer product. You go for the sermon, you have some sort of functional need. Uh, I asked Christian leaders, could you make the church more community-oriented, more place-oriented, just by doing that and embedding people in stronger place-based relationships? They would just be doing a great service. It, it's, it, I think it involves rethinking what is the role of faith, and it's not just about, I believe in this and I'm against that. It's about ultimately religion's biggest role is building community 
And that is why it will continue to exist and and in some form in our societies. And if it, to be honest, if it's not our current religions that satisfy that need, there will be substitutes because we have a great need for community and belonging, and that's part of our part of our innate nature as people. That's really fascinating. It's, it's fascinating, yeah. Well, Kelvin, why you? Where did you get your belonging from? I don't know. Maybe be, I was trying to think the the religion that bonded me together or brought me together with more people because I grew up in a very religious Scottish Presbyterian family. You were family. Protestant. Protestant. Oh Protestant, my God! Yeah. No one told me this. Yeah. Well, oh my God. That's why we. You guys need a few more Bibles at the bar. <laughs> Don't tell my mum. When, when I talk about our family, I'm, I'm talking about our wider family because we came from a very big, half Irish, half Scottish, um, family, and, um, and you you grew up. If I may ask, you grew up where you are now. I grew, I grew up in South up? Africa. No, I grew up. I've been living in. Oh, you grew up in South Africa. For forty years. Okay, you're South think, African. Yeah, I think, and and I think what what actually happened, we would go to basically go to Sunday school, and then I would go to a Catholic school. So I had this funny sort of mix. And I mean, one of one of your parents no, you didn't came really from have. Scotland. No, this, one of yeah, your parents is, came from Scotland originally, yeah, one from I guess, and one from one, Ireland. Yeah, so gra- grandparents, grandparents, yeah. Grandparents. Uh, um, so it was this strange mix. So we had half of our family being very religious. They were all lay preachers. And we didn't like them. Um, the thing about Presbyterianism is that it's, 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 it's hate. It's like a hate religion in the sense that Everyone's trying to abuse you with words every time you, you go to a sermon. You know, something's going to fall on your head. Someone's going to come and run you over. Someone's going to steal your daughter. You know, this is the, this is the sort of, so we, we walked away with this, I don't know, just sense of foreboding. And um, so religion didn't work for me. But I think the religion that came about is when I got to university and it was about the struggle that was happening in South Africa. It was about this idea of social justice and fairness. And um, and I probably told uh, Liam before, my father was a very fair man. And he always told us that no one's above you and no one's below you, you know, um, and treat people that way. And I think that was that sense of going into a kind of a, a group of people who were fighting for something good, you know, who were part of something that was that we felt revol- revolted by. So I think that was the thing that sort of gave me a religion in some ways, was, mm. was being part of a group that shared a similar, similar sort of common set of values. And, um, you know, I'm fascinated. There were two things that you, you spoke about a bit earlier. One was Jane Jacobs. Um, when, uh, when you go back and look at what's been written in recent years, recent generations, I can't find one decent new urban theorist has written anything worthwhile other than you said the lamenting of the past and uh, wouldn't it be nice or some sort of idea but no way of actually putting this theory into place other than what happened in the 60s and 70s around Jane Jacobs, John Turner, John Habrakan, uh, the Mumfords, the Lewis Mumfords, the Arnold Toynbees of the world. I said the great urban theorists at the time and I almost had to go back when I was writing Mass of Small Change to go back to go and reread those those theorists and how relevant they were and how great it would have been if we had to listen to Jane Jacobs. She was absolutely spot on. And um, fantastic movie that's come out recently called Motherless Brooklyn. I don't know if you've seen it. It's worthwhile having a look at mm. it. I pointed to you. It's about, it's a story of, of, um, of Jane Jacobs and, and Robert Moses fighting against one another, uh, but mm. set in a, um, a, crime, a crime novel almost. And uh, whenever I go to the book to pick out a phrase or pick out a quote, you can't beat what Jane Jacobs was saying. To the point I got when I was writing Mass of Small Change, I was trying to, I was inventing my own quotes. And I come back to your point, which I thought was so telling, which was actually the biggest single 
fault we have in society is not climate change, is not this, it's not that, it's actually the destruction of social fabric. So I wrote a quote which was, if we don't get our social fabric right, we'll eat our last panda. You know, and that's the, that's the series. We are, we, are, we, are, we are kind of people who will destroy what is out there unless we can get our social fabric right. So this point about I, I totally I totally agree. I mean, I think so many of our problems are uh, and 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 the thing is, what's interesting, there's not a conversation, there's not an elevated conversation. I mean, we could talk about it here, but mostly it's I, I know like loneliness is a big concern in the UK, yeah. but why isn't there a ministry? I mean, not that the government is the solution, but they have like some ministry of loneliness or whatever, or top official on loneliness. Well, I mean, it's a social fabric, actually. And then, and then, I mean, I, I haven't read there, but I read the, we had a huge loneliness report in my country. And what is the government recommending? More, in, more interventions and more educating people how they should behave better. But there's not a really sharp dis, or smart discussion about the social fabric, and they don't even mention neighborhoods. And if I may say, I think one of the problems with people who write about these things is they all went to school. And I'm sorry to say that. I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't want to encourage people not to go to school, but we're educated in ways. I mean, I, I have all this work in all these fragile states, and I do have a PhD. But actually, I got the PhD much later, and I always will tell my students, "You're learning it this way because I didn't study it in school." So I think Jane Jacobs, she studied the street, yeah. she studied reality. So I, I really think that one of the big challenges if you don't, we have to think and work backwards. If you're trying to help a place, yeah. work backwards from where the place is. If you want to study a subject, and this is what, I, I mean, when we don't think from reality to what is useful, and we think from the abstract to what is useful, you're going to only get in problems, lots of problems on the latter. And I think it's just the norm. The norm is we work from the abstract or the ideological. We don't work from the reality and the practical. And uh, to me, that will explain a lot of the challenges we have in addressing these problems. Yeah. So true. So, you know, coming back to this idea of, of how we do things, I think we know we don't have to prove that bottom-up change happens. You know, it's, quite often it's, it's, it happens, it's an innate, I'll often say, if you're in an informal settlement in Caracas somewhere, you know, top-down doesn't matter at all. You just have to get on, you have to survive, you do things. And through that process, you build society. And through that that process, that society evolves, unfortunately, to a point where top-down policies start prevailing. It's just a natural evolution of life that bottom-up creates top-down. So you can't have you can't have top-down without bottom-up. Yes, you can. Stalin did. Stalin did it quite well. I think you can have top-down only. But um, yeah, we don't we don't need more Stalin. We don't, no, we've we had don't, no, we've had enough. And you know what? <laughs> we and tried that. How he ended up in a pool of his own urine with no one going close to. Yeah. Let's not go there. Yeah, but uh, but. You know, this, the issue is that bottom-up eventually forms top-down. So you actually need this relationship between top-down and bottom-up. So the question I look at all the time is, is so what do we tell government? So Math Potts, when he was talking about his homelessness problem, was saying, similar, similar to you, that the real issue here is loneliness. And government was saying, sorry, how do you measure it? What are the metrics or what are the assessment what needs the you need to do? What are the outputs you need to... And therefore, we can't measure it. If we can't measure it, then how do we, like happiness, how do we measure these things? Uh, and what you can't measure, you can't fund. And that's the sort of the, the, the curious thing that happens. In, and of course, and it's very hard to measure the social fabric. That's part of the problem. So nobody works on it. It's one of the challenges. And I keep on saying, so we have a, a national housing crisis, um, like most parts of the world. But um, 
our national housing crisis has, has driven what I call a social care crisis. So because we haven't accommodated our mothers and our fathers, our elderly mothers and fathers within the fabric of society, we've kind of posted them off to to funny places uh, where they've We've outsourced. Yeah. We've outsourced everything. We've, we've outsourced, outsourced caring for our kids. We've outsourced caring for our parents. We've outsourced our products. I mean, uh, I mean, we've outsourced everything, it seems to me. But then you have a planning system that prevents that change happening, prevents this idea of, can I put a granny flat in my backyard? You know, so you can't do that. Why? You know, why do we have these top-down instruments that effectively kill urban society at the outset? And that's the point we're trying to grapple with, is, is if you're talking to government about these sorts of things, what are the key things that have to change? And I mean, I think you referred to um, how do you turn NIMBYs into YIMBYs? I think that was something you, you mentioned. How do you turn people into pro-development? Um, now, we have, uh, we've devolved democracy down to the level of what we call parish councils in our little village, who prevent everything happening. You love the parish council. I hate the parish council. I absolutely detest them because we've, we've had community action, community groups together to try and bring about change. And their view is, you know, who are you to come and tell us what, it's a bit similar to the guy in Detroit. Uh, who are you guys trying to tell us, tell us what we should be doing in our place? We know best. We've lived here for years. You've just, you're blowing. You've just come into the place. So um, I'm going to keep this in and I'm going to send it to the parish council, this, this part. Always really get uh, So this, this idea that, our, that what government does, government says we want to localise, but all they do is they create a model of themselves at the very local level. They create an instrument against change. They create a command and control mechanism right in your backyard, which prevents that change happening. And, you know, those are the sorts of things that need to be challenged. And we've been trying to challenge by going outside and saying, look, we need a proactive group that just shouts louder than the parish council. And it's quite difficult to achieve. It's quite difficult to develop that sort of momentum over time. But I think that's what we have to do. We have to all stand up. Um, I, I wrote an article recently about uh, change in South Africa. And uh, there was a very good um, guy I worked with at the, at the start of um, when Mandela came into power called Jay Naidu who said um, rebuilding South Africa is not rocket science. It just needs 60 million people to stand up. And that's all it does. You know, it just needs 60 million people. To, okay, of course, you need enlightened politicians and other things as well, but you just need 60 million people to stand up. And the real thing is, how do we get 60, when this country, how many? We have 50 million, aren't we, I think? 60. 50 or 60. How do we get 60 million people in this country to stand up, or 60 million, or 200 million in your country to stand up? And the problem is that, you know, sooner or later, it does come down to us. You know, you, you, your statement you made is it's, it comes down to ourselves in this whole thing. It does, and I think that's the challenge of what you write about, Seth, is that you know, we strip it all away. The answer to our problems is ourselves. And I think particularly in a, uh, a society like the United Kingdom, where you know, the welfare state has been great, and thank God for it, and the National Health Service, but it does breed a bit of sort of learned helplessness. Yeah. It's not my problem. It's their problem down at the council. They yeah. will sort it out for me. I'll never forget coming over here in 1986. I had a young child. And I'll never forget people at border, what could have border control, the passport guys, coming to us and taking us out of the queue and saying, welcome, you know. And, um, you know, you just come, you just come. Are you you're immigrating? How are we immigrating? We're coming back here and... Uh, and they were incredibly helpful. And I just came across thinking that I've moved from a completely intolerant society, this is an incredibly tolerant society, but we've become an incredibly intolerant society here. I mean, when you start talking about Rwanda and the sort of things they've been talking about recently, it's actually unforgivable. It's unforgivable what this, what this country's become, where it started from being such a tolerant place, 
So it's interesting how you know these things are also polarizing. As, as soon as we, as soon as we start finding problems, we find the reasons for these problems, and these problems are not about ethnicity or race or poverty or any of these sorts of things. They're just about people and relationships, as you said. Is how do you? Yes. Yes. I mean, I know. I mean, I think the big question we always should ask is how do we nurture so we don't just ask people to stand up. What can we do to nurture? <laughs> Yeah. this context so that they're more likely to stand up that's the big question yeah. yeah well look um it's been fantastic talking to you and you, the last line of your book is celebrate change and change agents applaud everyone's hard work to boost morale and highlight the possibility of further progress so can i celebrate you and the hard work that you've done and the wisdom and the insight and the good humor you brought to our podcast and thank you for being with us, Seth. And it's my great pleasure. And um, I'm looking forward to the next invitation. So thank you so much. We'll have you back. He's uh, good. He's good, isn't he? He's good. I'll tell you something, Seth. Um, your book is elevated to the top. When I say there's no urban theorists around, you've written something which is a seminal piece of work. And because I've read a very hell, kind, I read a hell of a lot in the past couple of years. And literally any book coming off the shelf I've got, and I've it's always been the one line, the one trick pony type books, a bit like your management consultancy books that uh, you probably don't read hate. as well. You hate is um, <laughs> more bullshit on how to from a management yeah, consultancy. It's just, it's just, but yet you've gone into depth here and you've gone into reasoning here, which I thought was was phenomenal. So thanks, thank you, thank you. I, I, to be honest, it's the social entrepreneurs that uh, deserve the credit. I just was finding them and uh, extracting lessons from them. So. Um, well, we just need more of amplification is really important. So the book is called Fragile Neighborhoods Repairing American Society One Zip Code at a Time by Seth D. Kaplan. What does the D what's D stand for? D is Daniel, uh, as as if I'm in the lion's den, if you know yeah. the if you know the the history. Well, keep roaring, brother. And uh, Okay, thank thanks you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks again.